Chapter 10, Days in Hollywood. The Hollywood to which I came in the spring of 1923 was still more than a village in the sun. The studios were few and compared with their future, modest in size and budgets. There was a scattering of palatial homes. Harold Lloyd's, Mary Pickford's, Barbara Lamar's, Pola Negri's, Rudolph Valentino's, Charlie Chaplin's, in which magnificent parties could be thrown. The majority of the remainder had neither the size nor the facilities for the large-scale entertainment seemed to become so familiar. On the surface of the Hollywood of 1923, there was a good deal of substance in my brother's contention that there was an insufficient population to support our repair shop, and little hope for my future in handmade shoes, particularly considering the limitations of my output. When I left Hollywood in 1927, never to return as it happened except for a visitor, all was changed. Studios were larger, more magnificent, wealthier, and some of the concentration of capital had already taken place. For instance, the American Film Company had disappeared into Fox Films and Metro Goldwyn Mayer had been born. The million-dollar spectacle, which in 1923 was a dream occasionally reaching realisation, in 1927 was a commonplace. The number of stars, extras, bit players and technicians had multiplied, and in the main had thrived on the growing, apparently endless prosperity of this giant industry. The exotic villas of the wealthy were creeping inexorably up the surrounding hillsides as each new star strove to make good the claim that he or she was tops in Hollywood. More significant still, the silent film was on the edge of death, with all the upheavals which that occurrence meant to the stars and the studios. For the Hollywood boot shop on the corner of Las Palmas and Hollywood Boulevards, it's still there, though the name and owner are not the same. Those years were glittering and glorious, and yet, in a curious sense, unsatisfying. My shoes sold in ever-increasing numbers. The comfort of my creations reached into every corner of the United States. And I captured virtually the entire theatrical trade, and my shoes were on the feet of the most fabulous movie stars, on the feet of dancers, shows, bit players, directors, and producers. I was, by my own standards, if not the standards of Hollywood, and an immensely wealthy man, richer than I'd ever dreamed I could be in the days of Benito. I had many friends. Yet, I had to throw it all away, as I'd thrown away my shop in Benito and my shop in Santa Barbara. As I look back now, I seem to see a parallel between the film industry and my own. The era has vanished for the movies, and my part in it too has gone these many years. Yet, Just as a motion picture industry's grown and developed from those fledgling days, so too, I hope, has mine. My life in Hollywood during these years fell into three sections. My handmade shoes, my flirtation with machine-made shoes, and my experiences with people for whom I worked. From the beginning, my working problem was plain, how to make enough shoes to supply the demand. In Santa Barbara, my output of handmade shoes had never been large, except in the really busy weeks, it was scarcely greater than the quantity I'd imagined to produce years before in Benito. Therefore, I knew before even I opened the Hollywood boot shop that I could not cope with the requirements of possibly half a dozen studios instead of one and hundreds of customers instead of scores. As it turned out, Hollywood's growth outstripped even my optimistic assessment of the future development and intensified my problem. To begin with, I took up my connection with the American Film Company and all my old friends from Santa Barbara, but within a few weeks my customers had grown steadily. 
In those days, the rival studios cooperated closely enough to hire shoes and costumes and other props among each other, with the result that the other studios were brought into contact with my shoes without my having to go canvassing for the business. The immediate effect was the influx of orders to make shoes for entire pictures. As in Santa Barbara, they sent me the scripts and I was required to design and make the entire wardrobe of shoes in the styles of the period required. The difference now is that instead of the films being shorts or serials or modest first features only a few reels long, industry was tackling the enormous spectacle picture which employed hundreds and even thousands of extras in addition to the stars and bit players. The first of these films with which I was concerned was Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments almost the first of that great director's many great pictures. In addition to the Ten Commandments, I also worked on The King of Kings, DeMille's story of Christ. Our friendship cemented in those early days, still endures, and today I make his shoes still, and those of his daughter and his nieces, Agnes and Margaret. The Ten Commandments presented me with a problem similar to the one I solved in Santa Barbara when I was first asked to provide shoes for a costume film. It was my first commission for a shoe wardrobe of a spectacle film of such immensity, and it staggered me. I'd never designed shoes for the Babylonian-Egyptian Hebraic period, and my knowledge of the times was nil. On an inspiration, I sat down and designed a high-fronted shoe with a mask reaching halfway up the shin bone, and on the mask I placed the heads of beasts, lions and leopards, and strange mythical creatures. For the Egyptian, I designed an open half-toe with sandal effect. When the girl I know employed to turn my rough pencil sketches into detailed instruction had completed her work, I took the results to DeMille. I knew him already as a man with an immense capacity for detail. He's the most cultured director in Hollywood. I don't think there has been a man to compare with him, and I doubt that there'll be another for many years. When he's working on a film, he carries the whole scope of the detail in his mind. He organises everything, from the shoes to the sun, and a fly can't go by without DeMille knowing it. Therefore, I wondered how my inspiration would look in the eyes of his mastery of the period. Well, he was delighted and enthusiastic, and he made no corrections. But I had, or I thought I had. To satisfy curiosity, I went to the local library and scanned every book I could find, which might give me a clue to the closeness of my imagined ideas to the actual footwear of the real mosaic period. Well, I found virtually nothing. It remains a fact, still true today, that the footwear of the ancients has never been adequately described or catalogued. Dresses, yes. Headdresses, yes. In plenty. But shoes, no. I found here and there a hint of sandals, plain, a one-strap sandal with a flat heel, and here and there the evidence of no shoes at all. Otherwise, there was nothing. Incidentally, it's not only the ancients that have been neglected by those who record fashions. If you cast your mind over the portraits that you've seen painted by the great masters, How many can you recall which show the shoes? Well, I was thus unable to confirm my inspiration for the records, yet my designs harmonised perfectly with the costumes of the mosaic period because I believe I'd remembered them. After DeMille, and also concurrently with him, came D.W. Griffiths and James Cruz. Griffiths' masterpieces, The Birth of a Nation and Intolerance, were already behind him. But there were many more films to come, including Way Down East and The White Rose, Cruz's most famous picture on which I worked was The Covered Wagon, and the great studios followed one by one. Fox Films, Universal, Warner Brothers, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. I made shoes for the films of Clara Bow, Rudolph Valentino, Lillian Gish, The Costello Sisters, John Barrymore, John Gilbert, Vader Barra, 
And of course, my stars of the Santa Barbara days, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. and Paula Negri. Soon, individual actors, both known and unknown, who'd worn my shoes in films, came to me with the personal orders. And later on, as visitors to Hollywood took my shoes farther afield, people came to me from all over the States. Within months of my arrival in Hollywood came the event which marked the city's victory as the film centre of the United States and eventually of the world. The establishment of Grauman's Egyptian and Chinese theatres. Grauman's confidence in Hollywood's wealth, growth and future was shown by his fabulous shows. In addition of a major film, there was always a floor show in which he would employ as many as 100 dancers. Each dancer wore identical shoes for each number, but she might be required to change four or five times in each show. I was specialising in dancers' shoes, and so the orders came to me. I kept the ballerina shoe, so fashionable today, always in good stock, alongside dancers' shoes with a soft toe, one strap, and a completely flat heel, those with a box toe, those with a heavy hard toe, and those with a medium soft toe on a perfectly plain shoe which pulled on and tied at the instep. Thus, the demand for my shoes in Hollywood quickly fell into three categories. Special shoes for films, shoes to order for individuals, and serial lines, stage shows, and individuals which could be carried in stock sizes and designed in the same way as a normal retail store. Most of the shoes used by the dancers at Groman's were carried in stock in white. In just 15 to 20 minutes, we could tint them with a spirit dye to the shade required. I organised as many shoemakers as I could on the serial lines, and Taylor, Dietrich and I, with as many other men as I could find, concentrated on custom-made shoes to individual order. Many of my work people at the time were Italians and Mexicans who were capable, especially the Italians, of making the whole shoe by hand at home. I couldn't use them on serial lines because no two pairs of shoes thus would be made alike, but they were competent enough on single pairs. Yet, even with this assistance, I could not always satisfy the demand and there were many occasions when I knocked from door to door in Hollywood in search of anyone who could help me to make a pair of shoes. Some of my difficulties were my own fault because I changed my styles so quickly. Of every 10 shoes made for me by my workers, six would be satisfactory and the remainder would have to be discarded. Largely because as soon as they'd learned to make one line perfectly, I switched them to another, a newer model. The period, indeed, is studied with styles and designs, and at the beginning I modified the French toe, making it a trifle sharper, and called it the stage toe. At the end of the period, in answer to the pleadings of short girls who wanted to look taller, I created the platform sole. I continued to make my Roman sandals in many styles, and my first model stayed in vogue almost to the 30s. I remember some of the more exotic individual orders, the corkscrew heels studded with imitation pearls for Gloria Swanson, the multicoloured satin slippers for Lillian Gish, the rainbow-coloured evening shoes with ankle straps and tall gold heels for Dolores de Rio, and the serpent shoes for Esther Ralston. These were a pair of black and gold slippers with a spike heel. To the vamp of each shoe, I glued the head of a snake and their sleek, flexible bodies with golden scales painted as lifelike as I could make them, rived halfway up her beautiful legs. They cost $150 and were designed for a jungle film. Esther was supposed to wear them as a totem to scare away wild animals. Instead, she wore them one night to Coconut Grove and scared the life out of the Abitus. Best of all, I remember the Indian princess who'd made my sandals popular and for whom I made the most exquisite and certainly the most rare pair of shoes of my career. 
After buying my sandals in Santa Barbara, the princess returned to India. Years later, she came back to Santa Barbara and finding me gone, she sought me out in Hollywood. Her request now was for a pair of shoes that would be completely different. She was so insistent on this word different that it occurred to me that it might be possible to make shoes of birds' feathers. Excited, I began to experiment. I tried the feathers of many birds, but when it came to sticking them onto the shoes, they proved too clumsy or too big. Finally, almost in despair at my failures, I asked a Mexican boy who worked for me to bring me the smallest bird's feathers he could buy. He returned with duck's feathers, and they were uglier still. The following Sunday, the problem still unsolved, I went to stay for the weekend on my brother-in-law's ranch in Mission Canyon. There, I looked and looked, examining every flying thing. I could see nothing suitable. None of the birds had feathers luminous enough or small enough for my purpose. I'd almost decided to give up the idea of feathered shoes and seek another solution when I saw a hummingbird. It was so small and its tiny feathers were set so closely on its body that it seemed the answer to my prayers. I asked my brother-in-law if there were many of these birds about and he told me, here, one or two, they're mostly called honeysuckers because that's what they do. They suck the honey from the flowers. But they're more common in Southern California, down towards the Mexican border. You might get some feathers there. Following day, I approached my Mexican boy again. He looked puzzled at first, and then, as my explanation broke through the language barrier, he nodded and said in Spanish, Oh, the bird with the long invisible bill. He added that he thought he might be able to get some of the feathers from relatives living in Southern California. At last they arrived, a small bunch for which I paid $10, and I set to work. And when the princess saw the result, she was almost lyrical with excitement and joy. She at once decided that she must have hummingbird feathers on this model and that model and the other model. I said, Your Highness, these are just about the only hummingbird feathers that can be obtained in the United States. They're not really enough for even one pair of shoes. I pointed out to her the spots where in order to ensure the covering of the whole shoe, I'd been none too generous with the feathers. She insisted, however, that she would like one more pair on a model with a more sandalized effect. I searched and searched, but I couldn't find any more hummingbird feathers before the princess was due to leave America for India, and I was forced to decorate her sandals with birds and other effects. There are two more points about this story. When the princess asked me the price of the feathered shoes, I didn't know what to charge. The order was so unusual that my normal standards of payment did not apply. As I was making up my mind what to ask, I told her of my difficulty in obtaining the feathers, of my many experiments, of the high price I paid for the small bunge, I added, I hardly know how to fix the price. If you paid me 500, it would cover all the time and trouble and expense that I've been put to. Before I could say anything else, she said, that's all right. And she handed me $500. It's the highest price that I've ever received for a single pair of shoes. In the years to come, I made many pairs of shoes for the princess. She returned again and again to Hollywood and when I established my salon in Florence, she visited me several times. Sadly, I lost touch with her at the outbreak of the Second World War, and I heard from her family that she had remarried, and I imagine that she changed her religion and now belonged to a sect which prevented her from moving in the world of fashion. My relationship with the stars was now on a completely different basis to my relationship with those that I'd known in Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara, I was a youth, something of a curiosity to be making shoes as so young, and as I've hinted, was occasionally the target of good-natured fun. In Hollywood, I was a man in my 20s, 
still young, of course, but many of the stars in the film city were no older and some were younger. And I immediately began to mix with them in my private life as well as in business. Men and women like Valentino, John Barrymore, John Gilmott, DeMille, D.W. Griffiths, Joan Crawford, Clara Bow, and Corrine Griffith. Valentino and I, of course, were two good Italians together. He would drop into my house on Beechwood Drive to eat a bowl of spaghetti, cooked as he'd liked it in Italy. He was a beautiful boy, always impeccably debonair. He liked to dress the Italian way, put as much as possible on himself, but everything would be tip-top and was always perfectly groomed. He would never tolerate hair like mine, which crinkles and tends to get out of hand. Every hair had to be slicked down and every movement of his body, every gesture was thoughtfully measured. John Gilbert, tall and thin Valentino, Douglas Fairbanks, an other Italian actor named Luca Flammer. He might have stepped into Valentino's shoes after Rudolph's death if he'd allowed himself to act more and pose less. We all went swimming one day at Arrowhead Lake. We organised a series of swimming races, but the water was so bitterly cold that only two of us completed the course, myself and John Gilbert. John Barrymore, that perfect actor, used to drop into my shop for a drink as well as to buy shoes. His feet were beautifully shaped, but bad shoes as a boy had made him a trifle flat-footed. I always tried to keep a bottle of something tucked away in the back of the salon. It was the only welcome gift you could uh, make to the stars. They had all the money and all the possessions they needed. But it being the time of prohibition, drink was difficult to obtain and anyone who was lucky enough to come across a spare bottle promptly drank it. D.W. Griffiths was fond of pretty feet and pretty legs and ankles as well. And early in my career in Hollywood, he suggested that I run a beauty competition for the best feet, ankles and legs in the city. He would offer the first prize, a six-month film contract, and I could give second and third prizes of shoes. It might be a good stunt, he thought. Well, so did I. The event was organised and the winner, according to the panel of judges, was a girl named Marjorie Howard. My own choice was a girl with beautiful legs who was trying hard to break into films. Her name was Joan Crawford. I forgot whether she won second or third prize, but I know that those were the first shoes of mine she ever wore, and she's my customer still. I also knew Clara Bow long before she was the famous it girl. And at her weight, I may say of 150 pounds, she was a plummy lass who wore the highest heels I have ever made. They were four inches high and I swear I defied the law of gravity with them. She'd enormously strong, high arched dancer's feet. And when she was in my shoes, she walked on tiptoe. Needless to say, 10 blocks along Hollywood Boulevard was about the limit of her walking in those beautiful shoes. It was while I was driving with Clara Bow that I gave up smoking. We were crossing Death Valley, California when I ran out of cigarettes. I was in torment at every place, there were not many, where a human could be found. No matter what sort of human being, I endeavoured to beg a smoke. I failed and it was not until the end of the journey that I was able to buy a package and slay my craving. As I drew the smoke into my lungs, I suddenly realised that it was only a miserable slave to have it and I promptly threw the cigarette away and I've never smoked since. Maria Palermo and Morris Schifano were two of the greatest illusionists who have ever lived. Morris could give the illusion that the auditorium was filling with water, while Maria could make you disappear from a room without you knowing it. One day in my house, she did the trick with myself and my three brothers. We four were all in the room, and we could talk to each other, 
Yet as long as the illusion lasted, we could not count more than three of ourselves. Then, two, I went to parties. Occasions which I once enjoyed and detested. I liked the company and the fun, and it was good for business too. The people that wore my shoes would praise and show my creations, and the people who could not show my shoes tucked their feet under the table in embarrassment and came into the salon the next day to be fitted. But I hated the drinking in the late hours. I always had to work the next morning. I learned my lesson at my first party. It was thrown by Barbara Lamar one Saturday night, a few months after I'd gone to Hollywood. And as far as my hazy recollection goes, was attended by virtually every star in Hollywood. Well, those who could tolerate one another. From Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks downward. It was tremendously exciting. Everyone was pleasant and charming and kept thrusting drinks at me. Seemed ungracious not to accept. So although I'd never been more than a light wine drinker, I swigged away with the best. After the full drink, I think it was, though I wasn't keeping an accurate score, I passed out. I woke up at 10 o'clock the next morning, still in the house. Hurriedly, I rose, taking my hangover with me and picked my way among the others lying on chairs and floor. Some still sleeping the sleep of the just kept sober, others, as I had been, unconscious. I went home, had a bath and I felt so sleepy I simply had to go to bed. The next thing I knew, it was Monday morning. After that, I accepted party invitations warily until Monty Banks accidentally showed me the way to combine pleasure and sobriety. We were discussing Italian drinks at a party one night when he mentioned grappa. As I'd left Italy as a boy, I knew the liquor only by name and had no idea what it was made of. But Monty said, can you mix one? Yes, of course, I said, trying to give myself airs. It's so simple. Well, go ahead, he said. So I went behind the improvised bar, juggled with a few bottles. Monty tasted the result and thought it was good. He yelled to others to come and taste. And when it was all gone, I had to make some more. Unfortunately, I'd forgotten the proportions. But I put a bold face on and tried again. And nobody worried about the difference in taste, if there was any difference. That little incident gave me the clue to my future role at parties. I would act as a bartender. From that date onwards, I became known as a mixer of splendid drinks, and eventually I was asked to parties more as a barman than as a guest. It suited me, and I did what I could with the limited ingredients. Drink was difficult to get, expensive when you could get it, and usually dreadful. I was forced to improvise. I remember that it invented two drinks, Ruscata and a green concoction, which became popular. Ruscata was an awful mixture. Gin, well, they called it gin, though it was practically pure alcohol, Angostura bitters, a dash of brandy and lots of ice. The green was simply mint and rum. Riscata was light because it left a pleasant aroma in the mouth and the green because it was cool. While the guests were drinking my concoctions, I stood nonchalantly behind the bar with a glass of ginger ale chosen because it looked like whiskey. Once I remember Barbara Lamar came up in a great hurry for a drink and not waiting while I mixed it, took a mouthful of my ginger ale. The unfamiliar taste so startled her that she sprayed it back, demanding to know why I was drinking such a horrible stuff at a party. The habits of film stars are apparently a source of inexhaustible fascination for most people. And I've been asked thousands of times how I managed to get on with them. Implication being that they were all temperamental, difficult and often unbearable. I've not found them so, except when there was an excellent excuse. An excuse which would have been good enough to bring an explosion from the least temperamental person. 
I've been appalled and horrified at the treatment some stars have received from people who minister to them. I've heard stars insulted by their dressmakers and hairdressers when the stars have wanted one thing and the dressmaker or hairdressers have wanted them to have another, usually for their own business reasons, to show off a new hairstyle or reveal a new creation. Stars who were foolish or insufficiently fashion conscious and allowed themselves to be talked into what they did not want might even find themselves humiliated on set when the director, looking at the unsuitable creations, stormed, where did you get that dress? What the hell have you done to your hair? Get out of it. Get off set. It's always seemed wrong to me that those whose job it is to serve people, to impress their ideas upon their customers solely for the desire to establish their own reputation. The world stars do not come to my salon to buy my reputation. They come to buy shoes that fit and flatter them. I've always tried to give them what they wanted, and on the occasions when I knew that what they wanted was wrong, I've used every while to persuade them out of it. If film stars are more liable to fly off the handle than other mortals, the answer surely lies in the conditions under which they work, and especially the conditions under which they worked during the era of the silent films. Today, film acting is much easier because the players have the power of speech. In the 20s, they could express themselves only by mime, and so they had to be good. Every actress and actor I ever met in those days who ranked as a star had first-class qualifications for that part, which is more than can be said for some of the actresses who parade before the camera these days. Indeed, it seems to me that the films today have ceased to concentrate on the actors and are more concerned with the background. It was not so in the silent days. The great actors and actresses, whether on stage or screen, always give of themselves, drawing upon their exceptional depths of emotion and sensation to convey those emotions and sensations to their audiences. In the 20s, the great actresses prepared themselves for days and sometimes weeks beforehand. They would retire from public life, seeing only those people absolutely essential for the necessities of living, relaxing as best they could. One would drink, another would chain smoke, yet another would play endless games of solitaire and a fourth would prefer cars with a loads of idle chatter. But all were strung up to what I sometimes thought was an inhuman pitch of concentration. Gloria Swanson, a marvellous actress, a born actress with an art entirely her own, Dolores de Rio, Lillian and Dorothy Gish, Marlene Dietrich, Greta Garbo, the great actresses of them all, Paulette Goddard, the incorruptible Pola Negri in her own way. I've seen Pola Negri acting before the cameras with such intensity that I feared she would not live through the performance. Then too, unlike the stage actress, the film star must sit afterwards and watch herself. Must be agony. An agony to the conscientious artist to see her rushes and to pick out her errors. The gesture, the step, the emotion which did not quite register. Then to go to the premiere with rivals and critics ready to tear your reputation to shreds. In these conditions, explosions are not surprising. It's only surprising they do not occur more often. I was the centre of storms from time to time, of course, but it was always my own fault. I remember Paulette Goddard kicking off shoes with two swift movements so they flew from her feet like bullets from a gun. Because I'd been less careful than I should with the shoes had pinched her a trifle. Miss Goddard had a mind of her own. In those days, she was much sought after. Every director chased her with contracts. She would break one contract, pay the damages, and someone else would take over. She was the one star who did that over and over again. She started films for DeMille, which she never finished. 
She has a beautiful body and legs. And even today, she has the legs of a girl of 18. And she loves beautiful shoes. She will never wear anything that might spoil her lovely feet. Then was this night when Jean Harlow threw my shoes out of the window. Luckily, the window was open. But that was my fault too. It was the evening of the world premiere of the film which made her a star, Hell's Angels. She and I were good friends. She was beautiful and charming and she adored my shoes. For this event, the most important in her life, she ordered a pair of pale lavender evening slippers with a rhinestone heel. I'd taken a great deal of trouble over them and it was only an hour or two before the premiere was due to start that I managed to finish them. Then, as the boy was packing them, he spilled a bottle of stain. They were ruined. Desperately, I hunted through my stock and found a pair I knew would fit. I hastily dyed them the correct shade, but as they did not possess the rhinestone heel, I painted the heels with glue and stuck on diamond dust. Then armed with both pairs of shoes, I went in person to her apartment. There, I made the grave error of showing her the ruined shoes first. I wanted to know the trouble I'd gone to. Um, I'm afraid there's been a mistake, I began. Miss Harlow looked at the shoes and then at me and said, There's been a mistake, has there? Well, here's another. She snatched the stained shoes from my hand and out of the window they went. She stormed around the room with me closely behind trying to explain that I'd solved the problem. She didn't listen. She would not listen. Jars from her dressing table smashed on the floor. Bottles of scent followed the shoes through the window while she raged, You know the premiere's in an hour. The dress is ready. Everything is ready. And you make a mistake in the shoes? At last, I managed to calm her down and showed her the substitutes. It took more persuasion to get them on her feet. And when I'd finally succeeded, she discovered that they fitted perfectly and matched her dress. She was happy again, but she looked at me witheringly and said, why the hell didn't you show me those shoes first and tell me the accident afterwards? It was a lesson in psychology I've never forgotten. <laughs>